Open your Bibles, please, to Ephesians chapter 5. It's fairly rare that somebody writes an editorial, especially somebody who is of a fairly liberal bent, that really endorses what God says. And, uh, of course, that's not the point of his, uh, of his uh, editorial, but he really does uh, challenge us in a particular area. And, and I need to tell you that he's black, this editorialist, because his comments otherwise could be misunderstood. And he is writing about black culture in America. For some of us, it is the easiest thing in the world to idealize black women, to romanticize them, sentimentalize them. Consider The Legends Ball, a TV special this week. This is obviously a few weeks old. A TV special this week produced by that uber-black woman, Oprah Winfrey. I seldom watch Winfrey's programs, but her salute to trailblazing black women kept me rooted. There was something soul-settling in seeing all those sisters, daughters, mothers, Gladys Knight, Maya Angelou, Cicely Tyson, Dorothy Height, Leotone Price, and more, gather in their big hats and finery to celebrate and be celebrated. Or consider a chat I had earlier this month with a group of academics and healthcare professionals about the fact that black women have among the lowest suicide rates in the country, one-third that of white women, according to a 2003 University of North Carolina study. Asked why, I began to, to wax eloquent about the grounding that spirituality gives, the grace that hardship brings, and that serene majesty that often settles in on black women of a certain age. Point being, black women are the strength and sucker of their community. They are the last line of defense. That's why there's something heartbreaking in what Bill Cosby recently told 500 of them, 500 black women, the graduating class of Spelman College, a historically black women's college in Atlanta. In his commencement address, Cosby advised the young women that they will have to assume sole responsibility for the salvation and uplift of the black community because their men, by and large, have opted out. As quoted by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, he said, Men as young boys are dropping out of high school, but they can memorize lyrics of very difficult rap songs and know how to braid each other's hair. As quoted by the Palm Beach Post, he said, You young women have to know it's time for you to take charge. As quoted by the EUR Web, a black website, he said, It is time for you to pick up the pace and lead because the men are not there. The stark figures on incarceration and education that support Cosby are so well known as to defy repetition. And a 2003 Newsweek report tells us that increasingly, black women of education and achievement are having a hard time finding similarly situated black men. There is nothing new about women picking up the slack for men. We take it for granted that they will do this that they will raise the children, tend the house, anchor the community when the men are jailed or killed or simply disinterested. That's sad. And while it may be true, and I'm not here to bash black people, believe me, I love black people. One of my good friends that I 
I wish I could have seen at our national conferences Kazia McNeil, saw her parents. I am not here to bash black people, but I'm here to say the black community has realized there is a gaping hole in their community and it is men in the home. Oh, we see black men in the culture all the time. But they aren't staying in the home. They aren't leading their homes. Now, the white community looks far better than that. Did you catch the key word there? Because it would appear that white men stay in their homes in a much more committed kind of way, even if it's transitory. You know, every five years we get a different man in the home, whether we need it or not. It appears more stable and committed, but what I want to challenge you men toward and, and what I want to stand for is the whole concept of what God tells us, which is that men are to be staying and committed in the home and beyond staying, to be leading. Now, of all the text in the Bible, this is one of those who who has the potential and which does on a regular basis rankle and upset both unsaved and saved people on a regular basis. Because I believe we have misunderstood the heart of the issue of male leadership in the home. Follow as I read from Ephesians 5, 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. And here's the promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. Then, and you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. What does it mean for a man to be the head of his home? It means he follows the example of the leadership of Jesus. I know that's really, really simplistic, but it is absolutely vital because that's, that's the whole image that's brought to us here, friends. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. There is a model for us. We're not left to guess what it means for a man to be a leader in his home. We're not left to each individually make up our own definitions. 
God tells us what it means, and it means that we are to follow the leadership of Jesus. Where is then, where is Christ leading believers? This is a critical starting point. If we're supposed to follow the model of Christ, what is Christ doing? What's he about in regard to believers? When he talks about the church there, the church is composed of all believers of all time. Every person who has ever put their faith in Christ as Savior becomes part of the body of Christ. And the other word used of that in the New Testament is the church. Where is Christ leading believers? Well, the goal of Christ's headship is righteousness. It's really quite simple here. Look at verse 26. Or verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Why? Why? That he might sanctify. The word sanctify means to set apart unto a righteous purpose, unto God's purpose. That he might sanctify and cleanse. That's obviously talking about removing sin. He might sanctify and cleanse her with what? With the washing of water by the word. The truth of God comes to us. We're able to believe in Christ and our sins are washed away. Verse 27, he goes on though. It's not just that initial salvation you might say that it's about. That he might present her to himself a glorious church. Not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. But that she should be holy and without blemish. This passage is just rich with with, uh, visual imagery. And and no doubt, God wants us to to consider the image of of a glorious bride. Do you know what kind of a bride is glorious? Every single one. (laughs) You know why? I I don't know if it's because they're so excited to get married or so much effort is put into looking beautiful on that day, but I mean, I've done dozens and dozens of weddings and... Even some pretty plain-looking ladies look beautiful on their wedding day. There's great effort given to it. And they walk down the aisle and you go, my, what a beautiful bride. The Bible says that someday we are going to join Christ face to face. And his goal on that day is that when we walk down the aisle and are joined to him permanently in a face-to-face kind of relationship, that we will be utterly, perfectly righteous. And in his eyes, that's what will make us glorious. The book of Revelation talks about being clothed with white clothing in the presence of God. Jesus Christ has a very clear goal in his headship. He has a target that he is aiming at. And that target is righteousness in you and I. And as such, he is the model for us men in our homes. Now, I, I want to consider for a moment what his, goals, what his goal is not. Because some of these things really trip us up. First of all, the goal isn't ease. The goal isn't ease. How do I know that? Because I read verses like James 1-2, which says, Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. If God's goal for your life was for it to be easy, he would not say you should welcome trials. But he knows that the best way for us to become righteous involves difficult circumstances as part of that process. So the goal is not ease. 
Secondly, the goal is not affection. God doesn't look down from heaven and say, what could I do that will make those people just have warm fuzzies for me? That really plays into the definition of God for those who don't know him personally. Because every time something bad happens, they say, where's God now? Because they believe their kind of a God would be one who would always do things, who would make people on earth go, oh, you're so good. Oh, I just, I'm just so happy with everything you do. And I know that's not his goal because look what he did with the Apostle Paul. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. And, and just so you understand, Christian, as when we walk by this verse, this, is ver- this very much parallels what happened to Job. Satan came along and said, I want to get after Job. And God allowed him a certain access, not a complete access. Does God do that sometimes? Yes, he does. Why? Concerning, or why, he says, so I wouldn't be proud. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. I would submit to you that if God's goal was the affection of everybody on earth, he wouldn't do that. But it's not his goal. His goal is our righteousness. Lastly, the goal isn't pleasure. The goal isn't pleasure. Pleasure is what's fun for you. Listen to Acts 9. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas. For one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he's praying. And in a vision he's seen a man named Ananias coming and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Now remember, Saul of Tarsus, for those of you that maybe haven't read Acts lately, he was the guy going around persecuting Christians. He was actually standing there holding the coats so the men could throw harder the stones at Stephen when Stephen was killed for his faith and for preaching Christ. That's the man we're talking about. And later he becomes the Apostle Paul. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many things about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Do you understand that God spoke to Ananias and he says, go down and do this hard thing. Is God all about making your life fun? Making it pleasurable? No, he's not. He's all about making your life righteous. And that's how he worked with Paul. That's how he worked with Ananias. That's how he's going to work with you. And in that, he is a model for us as fathers. It's very tempting as a father to look at these three things and say, that's my job. My job is to make my kids' life easy. I had it tough when I was a kid. I'm going to make it easier for them. They are never going to want for anything. And I would submit to you that if you do that, you will ruin your kids because your goal is wrong. Oh, you have a heart that's good. Oh, I love my kids. 
but you've got a bad goal. It, many parents do things to get affection from their children. Oh, I want my kids to like me. I want to be my child's best friend. Well, that's very noble. I, I, I guess what it would really be honest if parents would say, I want my child to consider me as their best friend. That's what parents really want. I want to be the, the best person in their life. <sighs> Well, my sin nature wants that too. And, you know, maybe if you live righteously, maybe in time that'll happen. But if that's your goal, you will compromise the things that you need to do in order to really bring your kids up in a righteous way. It's not at all uncommon for, say, I want my kids to have fun. Whatever they want to do that's fun, I'm going to help them, you know. And, and so the kids are doing a hundred activities. What's your goal for your kids? The goal of Christ's headship is righteousness. The goal of the man in the family is also to be righteousness with his family. And here's the thing that I, that, to be honest with you folks, it's taken me a few years to really get all of this clarified, but here is what it, the headship in the home is not about. Being the head of your home is not about bossing your family around to suit yourself. <laughs> it's not about just doing what suits you. Even when what suits you is the ease or the pleasure or the affection of the kids. See, those things seem like really nice goals. You know, so many times, especially at Christmas time, we'll hear people be talking about children or, or especially about children who, who, who maybe are disadvantaged and we're going to give them gifts. That's what it's all about. Is them waking up on Christmas morning and being happy because they got a lot of stuff. Well, I, I don't want any kid to be unhappy. But I tell you what I really want is I want kids to be Righteous. Because the fruit of the Spirit is love and then joy. Whose joy and love and peace and so on do you want them to have? That of the world or that of God? The goal of the man in the family is righteousness. Or maybe I would put it better, it needs to be righteousness. See, I think this little statement that I've put here is I think some people, when they hear us say the man is to be the head of the home, that statement is what they think of. Oh, he gets to be the boss, do whatever he wants. And that's how unsaved people hear it, and they just, they just reject that. And frankly, they should reject that, and we should reject that as Christians. Because the man of the home doesn't get to do what he wants because he is a manager of his family. The Bible word in the King James is steward. A manager doesn't get to do what he wants because a manager works to accomplish the wishes of the owner. If you're the manager of a business, you don't get to come into work and say, well, the manager's gone today. I think we'll tear this place down. Or I think we'll, give everybody, we'll double everybody's salary today. You can do it. You might even get the checks out the door once. But you see, our problem is we've got a wrong concept maybe of the man's position. 
He is a manager who works to accomplish the, owner, the, the wishes of the owner. Do I need to tell you who the owner is? <laughs> the owner's God. We are all God's children. And so God is the owner, we are the managers. And I find a great parallel here to the ministry of the elders or of the pastors in a church. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Do you see it is the church of God? You're just put in a position to shepherd it. Pastors function under the authority of the Word of God, the Son of God, and the Spirit of God in their leadership of the church of God. I can't do just whatever suits me. I have to answer to God and to His Word. Husbands and fathers function under the authority of the Word of God, the Son of God, and the Spirit of God in the leadership of their family. That's the critical mental image that needs to be in the mind of every man. He needs to be saying, I'm, I'm a manager in God's management team, and this is my frame of reference, this family right here. And so I need to find out how God wants me to lead. Secondly, a manager supervises the employees to, accomplishes, to accomplish the goals of the owner. Think about it. The manager has to accept the goals of the owner, and then his job is to organize everybody who works there to accomplish that goal. And that, I believe, is the, is the mental image we need as men. The target for us as leaders in our home is the same as Christ's target for every Christian. The target is the righteous life. God says, men, you have been put on earth as the physical representation, the, the, the under-shepherd, the, the, the leader of the home, but you're doing it to hit this same goal that I've accepted. And, the, and the, the first person that the husband needs to lead is himself. The first person the husband needs to lead is himself. You need to ask yourselves, men, are you... Are you leading yourself toward Christ? And then, then he needs to lead his wife along that path too. It's essentially the man saying, here's where we need to go, and grabbing the hand of his wife saying, let's go there. That's the mental image that I have of a Christian man in his home. And then when his kids come along, he needs the two of them together need to grab their hands and say, we're going this way. Come on. Now I know ultimately you can't enforce Christianity on children. We're going to talk about that in a few weeks. But when they're young, you can enforce the righteousness of God. And that needs to be your goal. Men, what are you trying to accomplish in your family? Are you trying to get your wife to do everything you say? That's not the goal of Christian leadership. Do you see that your do you believe that your children will be successful if they get a good education and a good job and bring you grandchildren? Now you say, well, what's wrong with that, Pastor Dave? Well, there's nothing wrong with that if it's found in the way of righteousness. Is your goal for your kids to become successful citizens or righteous people? 
you know, praise God, all my kids are married and self-sustaining by and large, and I'm very thankful for that. But it wouldn't matter a lick to me if they were living in sin. Because that would be all I can focus on and say, oh, God, help them. That's what matters. Frankly, I think my kids are in the place they are because they have pursued the Lord. They found good people to be married to. They have gotten good jobs. They are doing what they need to be doing because they know the Lord. Is your secret ambition to raise an Olympic champion or maybe just a state high school football quarterback like Jake Locker? Oh, man, would that be great to be his dad? It's a wrong goal. Do you whip figuratively your kids to get straight A's, but you don't push them in righteousness? It's a wrong goal. As a man, we need to have our mind set on things above. Now, why does Christ lead believers? This is, this is so important because this really brings what I would call moral authority. I mean, obviously, we already have moral authority because God has told us to lead, but look at this. Christ leads believers because he cares for them. Look what it says here in verse, uh, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. It's just a, a few pages toward the end of your Bible. Just one page in my Bible ahead. Philippians 2, verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each one esteem others better than himself. Verse 4 of Philippians 2. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery or a thing to be clung to as a prized possession, to be equal with God in terms of his, the outward manifestation of what God looks like, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bond servant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in an appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Did Christ go to the cross because it seemed like fun for him. No. We see him in the garden the night before saying, oh, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. He did not want to suffer all of that. Why did he do it? Because he loved us. Because he loved you. He said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And he went and he went in the spirit of the Lord and in the joy of the Lord, and he, he suffered, and, and it was hard. But he did it because if he didn't do that, we would all go to hell. Christ leads believers because he cares for them. Men, do you do nice things for your wife so she will do nice things for you? <laughs> Well, I want to call you to do more than that. I want to call you to do nice things for your wife because she needs them to be done. Period. 
without regard for what she will do in return. The love of the world is reciprocal. I'll do for you if you do for me. But if you don't do for me, eh. Godly love is sacrificial. Jesus didn't come and say, well, I'll lay down my life if he just said, I'll lay down my life for you worthless sinners. He just gave. And that's our model. Do you give things to your children according to their needs or just to get them off your back? Little Johnny in the grocery store. Okay. You know, it's hard. It's hard to go eye to eye with a two-year-old. It is. But the question is, what's your goal? What's your goal? If your goal is that two-year-old's righteousness, you're going to have to go eye to eye. It means you're going to have to care so much for that two-year-old that you're going to put yourself out. You're going to sacrifice yourself. How great do you think it is when you're the pastor of a church and your two-year-old is fussing around? Think, uh, excuse me, all you sheep, I got somebody here who needs my attention more than you. He's not going to enjoy it, but he's going to get it. <laughs> do you think that makes me feel good when my kid dis misbehaves in front of everybody else? But I care for him so much that I will put you all aside and take care of him because I know someday it's going to matter in his life. Christ did not do what felt good. He did what we needed. Man, if you're going to follow the model of Christ, you've got to say, what does my family need in the way of righteousness? And how can I bring that to, uh, to them? Luke 9.23 is a key verse here. This is a key verse for the Christian life, and I, I don't even like to read it because I don't like to live it. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Being a, a godly dad who leads his family toward righteousness requires dying daily to your own desires. Is that easy? No. Is it rewarding? Yes. Secondly, Christ leads believers because he knows what's best for them. Now, I want to be real careful here. I'm not here to say Father knows best unless, unless what Father knows is righteousness. You see, everything Christ is leading us toward is righteousness in him. Now, if you as a man have picked up that mantle and said, yes, I'm going to do everything I can to lead my family toward righteousness, then you know what is best for them. What is best for them is the righteousness of Christ. I'm not saying you know what is the absolute right color of shirt to wear and, you know, on and on with all that. No, I'm talking about the great things of life. What is best for a believer? Righteousness. Think about this, these verses with me that you've quoted so many times. The wages of sin is? But the gift of God is? Eternal life. That is not just about salvation. It applies to every decision you make in life. If you make a choice to do sin, you reap a death quality of life. 
If you make a choice to do righteousness, you reap the eternal quality of life in Christ. Would anybody who knows that let their children or their wife live in sin without trying to do something about it? Well, no. Because every step of sin leads down and farther out, and every step of righteousness leads up. Husbands, what does your wife need more than anything? She needs to be like Jesus. She needs that more than a new kitchen or a new car or a vacation in Hawaii. Sorry, ladies. Your wife needs to grow in Jesus. Dads, what, does your chil- what do your children need more than anything? They need to be like Jesus. More than money or music lessons or sports or toys or vacation or anything, your children need to know Christ. Now, I'm not against all those things. I'm really for a vacation in Hawaii, I, I, you know. I hope to get there someday. I know Don used to live there, and he's going, yeah, Hawaii's good, yeah. I'm not against that. I'm not against your kids having music lessons. But is the top thing on your agenda, men, the righteousness of your family? Is that the top thing? And are you orchestrating some of these things in life to help accomplish that? Well, how does Christ lead believers? First of all, he leads by example. Again, we need, to, we need to lead ourselves first. Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Um, one of the things that Molly was saying, she learned about Christ, is that he lived a life like us. He understands us. So when we are looking for an example of how to bear up under difficulty or persecution, we can look to Christ and know that he experienced it. In fact, I would submit to you, he experienced it more than we do because the devil was personally after him consistently. So he really knows how to live that life. He's an example to us. He is not asking us to do something he has not done himself. The godly husband and father sees the target of Christ's likeness and leads himself toward it. You cannot make a disciple of someone unless you are one yourself. When I was a youth pastor, we took a big trip to California, and I got a call shortly before this trip. This teenage girl's crying on the phone. I can't go to California. How come? I got caught drinking on the, on the ski bus. I thought, well, I'm, I'm glad her parents are disciplining her. I don't know if taking her away from church is the best way to do that. So I said, okay, great. Let me talk to your mom. So I talked to mom. And I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm glad she's remorseful about what happened. I'm looking forward to the day when she's remorseful about the whole concept of sin and the drinking and, and all that goes along with that. I mean, what the parents were disciplining for her for was that she was drinking and underage because the mom says, there's a long silence on the phone, and mom says, well, husband and I drink. And I said, well, you're in a whole different position then, aren't you, trying to tell your daughter not to? Friends, I hate the truth <laughs> that my kids are going to be like me because I know my weaknesses better than anybody else. I think I do. I talk to the Lord about them every day. <laughs> but that needs to press us to be an example so that 
there will be an increasing amount of righteousness in us so that as our kids mimic us, and they naturally will, they will come out walking in the right direction. Men, I don't know how else to say it except to say if you drink, they're going to drink. If you smoke, they're going to smoke. If you treat their mother with respect, they will too. Now, I understand that that also has to be enforced, not just modeled, and we'll talk about that in a few weeks. If you love the Lord's work. Honestly, I had to enforce church attendance in our home. Yes, you're going to church. Yes, you're going to be there on time. We lived 50 yards from the Sunday school room. And 75 yards from the church building. Yes, you're going to be there on time. Yes, you're going to Sunday night service. Yes, you're going to our youth group, which isn't the greatest in the world. Oh, believe me, pastor's kids are not born with a spiritual spoon in their mouth. But as I thought about this, I thought, I mean, everybody has to do that. I thought, what might be a difference? And the only thing I could think of was that I love God's work. I don't come home and go, oh, man, I'm tired of church. I hate those people. They're so stupid. And I'm telling you, I think I know some pastors who do that because they talk that way to me about their church. You either love God's work or you don't. And if you love God's work and if you love God's people, you will couch those, those statements you must make about hard times and difficulties in a very different way than if at the bottom of the stack you really don't care. Do you love God's work? If you do, I think your kids will too. Christ leads through example. Secondly, he leads through his word. Can't stress this enough. You know how important the word of God is to me and how important I want it to be to you. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Way back toward the beginning of your Bible. The word Deuteronomy, if you don't know, means a, a second law. and it, it, It's not a second, it really means repeat. Before the children of Israel went into the land, there was a repeating uh, of the law of God so they would remember it um, afresh and anew as they went through, went into the promised land. Deuteronomy 6.1, now this is the commandment. And these are the statutes and judgments, or the laws, which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land you are crossing over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God and keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, you and your son and your grandson, all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. Therefore, hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. That is the summary of the law. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart, 
and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk in the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as a frontlet between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. God leads us through his word. And it was so important for these people to know the word that he said, look, here's the truth. Now teach it to your kids. Now, do you know how Orthodox Jews, even to this day, live out this text? They take little pieces of scripture on little paper and they put it in a little thing called a frontlet. And it's like a piece of jewelry, if you will. It's a little box and with a leather strap and they tie it on their head. It is... But, but, but what does it say there? A sign in your hand, they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And they have one they bind on their hand. And they nail them on the doorpost of their home. Now there's nothing wrong with taking a scripture passage and making a nice plaque and nailing it up on your wall. That's great. But do you know what this is really saying? Listen to the important part. You shall teach them diligently, verse 7, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. What's he saying? He's saying the Word of God should just be the part and parcel of your life. Coming to church is important. I'm for it. Coming to Sunday school is important. Coming to youth group is important. Uh, reading the Bible or, or having devotions or a Bible study book or whatever is important. But men, God's Word, and the principles of God need to be how you lead. So that when Sally comes home and says, I want to dress like Britney Spears, you have something other to say than, ain't no daughter of mine dressing like that so-and-so girl. Because that is not going to change your daughter's mind. It is the truth of God that can reach your daughter's heart. And so you have to say, what are the principles of God that apply to this? And how can I communicate them to her? And when your son comes home and says, I want to go to the kager. Oh, I'm not going to drink. I just want to be there with everybody. Are there principles of God that deal with that? Yes, there are. Are you prepared to say, son, here is what I'm saying and here's the deal? Are you prepared to share that? That's what's got to happen. It's every day and all the way. It's just walking. He says, as you walk along, as you get up, as you go to bed, it just should be part of your life. It should be just as natural as anything for you to say, this is a principle of God or this is a truth of God. That should be how you're living your own life. <laughs> it's not just about your kids, it's your own life. When you go along and you're tempted or you're tested, how do you respond to that? It should be with God's Word. There are two factors in the Word of God that we've got to recognize as parents. First, the first level of leadership is the absolutes of the Word. Lying is wrong, period. Sex outside of marriage is wrong, period. You should have no trouble enforcing that standard because it is absolutely clear. Your children may want to argue with it, but then you have to say, you're not arguing with me, you're arguing with God, and I'm here to stand with God. But then there are the applications of the principles of the word, where you look at your daughter's clothing and you say, now let's talk about the truth of God, and let's try to understand, and let's try to work this through 
And at the end of that discussion, you may still be enforcing some things, but there's room for a discussion and a working together and a making a decision together. Or, if your daughter's unreasonable, maybe there's a making of a decision for her, but it's by the principles of God, because God doesn't say in the Bible, thou shalt wear this or that. He doesn't. And so there's got to be some grace, and, and, and a, but there's still, that has to be the basis of the decision. Because then God is working with you in your children. You are not on your own. Number three, Christ leads with discipline. I don't need to remind you of this, but I will. And have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons? My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And he scourges every son whom he receives. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I just want to say this about discipline for today. We're going to talk about it more in a few weeks. Discipline is simply the enforcement of the goal. Discipline is simply the enforcement of the goal. A godly man needs to say, our family is moving toward Christ-like character. I remember one time when my son came home and was talking to me about being at somebody else's house where there was, there was at least beer that was there or was being drunk, and he was asking me about it. And he's probably in fifth grade or something like that. And I just said, son, there's two kinds of people in the world. There's people who drink beer and there's people that don't. I said, we don't, and here's why. And I explained it to him. And... Uh, if it had gone farther than that, then I would have gone farther than that. But we explain, and then we enforce, and we do it positively and negatively. Doesn't God encourage us positively? When you do something right, isn't the Holy Spirit there giving you joy in your heart and going, yeah, good job, and you think, yeah, that was the right thing. I'm so glad I did the right thing, and you feel good about doing the right thing. And then, when you don't do the right thing, doesn't God enforce that? First of all, He gives you guilt. And maybe later on he has to give you some consequences to get your attention. Men, men, you need to take the lead in encouraging and enforcing righteousness. Lastly, Christ leads through the Spirit. Christ puts the Holy Spirit in us to guide and to prompt. Now, your children do not have the Spirit of God in them until they accept Christ as their Savior. But once they do, you need to understand that the Word of God and prayer are, are forces that God uses through the Spirit in people's lives. And before they come to Christ as Savior, He uses the Spirit to convict them and convince them of sin and righteousness. And so how do we access the ministry of the Spirit in other people? There's two ways. One is through the Word of God, the other is through prayer. Are you diligently praying for your family? Every family member, every day. If you want God to work in your family, that is chief among what should be happening. Let's bow in prayer. Father, thank you for reaching out and loving us. Jesus, thank you for reaching out and loving us and suffering for us. Holy Spirit, thank you for enabling us, for being in us. Heavenly Father, help those of us who are husbands and fathers
to pursue righteous leadership. Father, I pray for those men who are not yet husbands or fathers, that you will help them to prepare themselves for righteous leadership. Help us as a church to encourage a godly family. I pray in Christ's name, amen.